This episode of Health Gig is part of the Evolution series powered by Paragon. We are working with Paragon Performance Evolution to bring you a special series of incredible speakers which have been hand-selected from their network to be our guests on Health Gig. Paragon works with companies to bring in authors and thought leaders who can help implement hands-on programs which focus on transformation, integration, and greater awareness. They blend the best of modern science, human behavior, and timeless wisdom into all of their programs, which is why we are so supportive of the work they are doing in this world. We are thrilled to be collaborating with Paragon Performance Evolution for this very special series and so happy to bring these conversations to you. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Paul Irving is chairman of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging, Chairman of Encore.org and Distinguished Scholar in Residence at the University of Southern California Davis School of Gerontology. He previously served as the Milken Institute's President, an Advanced Leadership Fellow at Harvard University, and Chairman and CEO of Minot Phelps and Phillips LLP, a national law and consulting firm. We can't wait for you to hear our conversation with Paul, who talks to us about the shift in the aging population the massive impact the aging population has on global markets with enormous profit potential and the benefits of aging workers and entrepreneurs. Paul talks to us today about the power and potential of purposeful aging. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Dora. Uh, Well, you're great to be with us and joining us. And we're so excited to hear about the Milken Institute and aging. But we wanted to start with a little bit about you. Bring us up to where you are today. The Reader's Digest of... of, (laughs) Reader's Digest version The Reader's Digest of 68 years. Let's see see where where do do I... Maybe I should start after high school because that wasn't such a good experience uh, for... Although I did a, a range of things. I worked in the entertainment industry and did some other things for a while. For most of my life, I was a lawyer. I worked as a partner in a large law firm. I ended up as CEO managing partner and CEO of that firm. I ran the corporate practice for a number of years. I did mergers and acquisitions work and corporate finance and various other things. And then for some reason, I decided that something was missing. This was in my late 50s. I decided I wanted to go back to school. So I was lucky enough to do a fellowship at Harvard. I know, Doro, that your dad was a Yaley, so you got to excuse me for being from the school from up the road. It was a fantastic kind of eye-opening experience, opportunity to breathe and to think after three decades of doing the same thing. I was debating about what to do next. I wanted to do something in social service, in I thought about something in government, something that in, was in some way serving. I ended up taking a job as the president of the Milken Institute and actually had no experience or real interest in the subject of aging or longevity, I'd been involved in things like legal services and financial literacy and civil rights and civil liberties and various other things, a little bit of interest in health, public health, but aging just wasn't on the radar. I literally showed up at my job and I was doing the thing that one does when one gets hired in a leadership position in a new place. I was doing a listening tour. I was you know, speaking to the staff people about what they liked and didn't like and hearing the complaints and ideas about how to change the organization. And the person who was then our development officer, by the way, it's a 501c3 public charity, came running into my office and saying, we have a fantastic foundation partner that is interested in doing an impact project on aging and longevity in America. 
America. And what I said is, I hope you told them, thank you. We have nobody here who has any expertise <laughs> in this subject. We didn't. And he said, like so many development people do in nonprofits, oh, no. I told him we'd love to do it. And then he <laughs> said, and Paul, you're getting kind of old. I thought you might be interested in thinking about what we might do. <laughs> so that was the beginning of a very, very new adventure. And I'm, I'm happy to tell you more about it, but that's the, at least the Reader's Digest version. That's pretty exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. And we do want to hear more about it. And we want to dive right into it. And tell us what role businesses have in human longevity and healthy aging. Maybe it's useful to just first think about the changing demography. So in many respects, I mean, this is one of those topics that I think people know about in very general terms, but don't understand the urgency, the import, the significance of the shift that we've gone through. For almost all of human history, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, people lived on average between about 20 and 30 years. Obviously, there were variations, there were outliers, there was Methuselah, right? There were some people who may have lived longer, but most people live very short lives on average as a result of things in childhood, sadly, infant mortality rates, and obviously things like not only chronic disease, but infectious disease. I mean, ironically, here we are in the time of COVID, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but obviously infectious disease is a much more serious and prevalent and regular challenge throughout most of human history. So about 150 years ago or so, as a result of improvements in sanitation and safety and medical advances, the advent of antibiotics, et cetera, lives just started to get longer. What we've now experienced is this really a twin phenomenon. And the phenomenon on the one hand is dramatically lower birth rates across much of the world, certainly in the United States, but across much of the world. And the second thing is longer and longer lives. Just to put it in perspective for Americans, at the time that Social Security was enacted in the United States, average longevity in the U.S. was something under 62 years. It's now, we know, about 80. And the prospects are for even longer lives, for increasing years. And by the way, again, these twin phenomena, low birth rates and longer lives, just mean the world is going to look much older in the decades to come. I mean, as we walk down the street, a higher percentage of the people we see will be old than has ever been the case in the history, not just of this country, but in the history of much of the world. And by the way, again, aging is very much a global phenomenon uh, happening much more rapidly in Europe, you probably know, and also in Asia. Japan, the first super-aged country of the world, but in China, Korea, South Asia, across Europe, in, in the UK and France and Spain and Italy, and on and on and on, this phenomenon of this shifting demography is really changing everything. So when I think about the consequences of this, not just for us, but for our kids and in the decades to come, what it really means is it's going to change everything. It's going to change the way we think about work and health and housing and education, lifelong learning, and the way our cities are designed and the way our countertops look in our kitchens and the size of our doorways and lots of other things. So back, Doro, I think to your question about how should businesses be thinking about it, what they should be recognizing is, as it has been with other shifts in demography, and fortunately, businesses are certainly more enlightened than they were years ago about the importance of women in the workforce and women as consumers, certainly as they become aware of the importance of diverse populations in the workforce and diverse consumer populations. This is unlike anything else, unlike race and gender and political belief and all the rest. This is one characteristic that we all have in common. This 
advent of a demographic shift of longer lives and population aging will, I think, need to change everything about the way businesses operate. This means thinking about older workers in a new ways, capitalizing on their wisdom and judgment, understanding how to manage and motivate multi-generational workforces, and very much taking advantage of the longevity economy, products, services, and innovations for an older demographic. Lots and lots of change ahead. Paul, where are we like on that cycle, would you say? Are we at the very beginning of seeing all this or have we made it through? We really are not in the very beginning of it. This is something that's been going on for a while, but I think we're in the very early stages of recognizing it. You know, in my world now, and, you know, I I mentioned the transition from law practice and I mentioned the presidency of the Institute. A couple of years after that, I decided that I wanted to do something else. I started the Center for the Future of Aging, which is based at the Institute. And I basically abandoned everything I was doing other than to focus on philanthropic work and action-oriented work around this shift in aging and longevity. So I'm involved in a number of other nonprofits in the National Academy of Medicine Initiative and various other things that focus on this. What I've come to realize is that those who operate in my world feel in many ways that we're part of an early movement, Mm -hmm. right? A movement to change hearts and minds and policies and practices and to have people recognize the inevitability of this shift and the impact that it's going to have on their lives and families and and communities. So I think that the process is very much already underway. Mm -hmm. Again, you know about low birth rates, you know about longer lives, but I think we're still in the early stages of recognizing the implications. But there are so many negative connotations to aging. People joke about old people in in our country. I know it's a huge hurdle we have to overcome. It is. Ageism, it's interesting when I think about how the dots connect, healthy longevity and opportunity for ongoing work and opportunity for purpose and lifelong meaning. And what will this longer life bring? I mean, a fast step back, Dora, because you raised such an important point. So in many ways, if you think about it, science has done its part. You know, I'm probably a couple of years older than both of you, but the reality is, is that I think you're old enough to very much recognize, like I do, that the most valuable thing we have really isn't money, it's not possessions, it's time. Time. It's, mm-hmm. ti- it's time with our families, it's time to learn, it's time to become involved. So here science has given us, just in a fairly short period of time, when you think about it in the context of human history, 20, 30, 40 more years And you know what? What I often say to my colleagues in academia and other places, as I say, science has done its part and social science has failed. We have Mm -hmm. this extra time, extraordinarily valuable, and we have no idea what to do with it. As we look at all of the pieces of that, which have to do with health and work and meaning and learning and family and relationship and living circumstances and all the rest, the overarching challenge, Doro, is exactly what you identify. It's ageism. It's both a a societal imprint, negative age bias, kind of a culturally embedded view of what growing older means. And it's also very much self-imposed, something that that we see in ourselves. You bring up a really good point. Dora and I were talking about it this morning, saying how often are we with people our age saying, God, we're getting so old. Oh, I feel It's so irritating. It's so irritating. 
two reactions. Uh, re reaction one is now because I'm so embedded in this work, I'm happy to talk about it and I want to talk about the benefits of aging, positive characteristics of aging. I did a book called The Upside of Aging. And I, mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about the benefits of being older. Yeah. There are challenges too, but you two are now looking at me. I don't know whether, I guess we're a podcast, so people won't be able to look at me, but you can look and I'll describe myself <laughs> at my bald head or my sinking chin. And even I, who recognize these positive aspects of aging, look at myself and have trouble, have a challenge in overcoming my own bias about whether I'm in a state of decline, a state of diminishment, a state of loss of relevance, loss of productivity. The truth of the matter is, and, and look, I don't want to sugarcoat the problems. Age is not a disease, but age is the principal risk factor for disease. We know the risks associated with aging and the coronavirus, right? Right. About a third of people 80 plus have some form of dementia and about 50% of people 85 plus. But just think about people at 80. That means the two thirds don't. They remain right. vital and vibrant. Can they run as fast as they used to run? No. Can they jump as high as they used to jump? No. Do they bring wisdom and perspective and the benefit of experience and an understanding how to navigate environments and get things done in ways that, that they didn't when they were younger? Absolutely. One of my friends talks about the shift in the global economy, and we know we've moved from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, and now I think people describe our economy as a knowledge economy, right? An economy that is very much reflective of all the entrepreneurship in, this, in the Silicon Valley. But the truth of the matter is, is that with machine learning, a lot of the things, a lot of the code writing activity that, that goes on today will be able to be done more effectively by machines in decades to come. And the thing that will be hardest to replicate, hardest for machine learning and automation and AI and all the rest to overcome is the wisdom that comes with age. So he speculates that the next economy may be defined as the wisdom economy, the economy that really capitalizes on these virtues and attributes of older adults and may create a different sense of value about what we can bring to the table throughout life. I've lost, as you know, both of my parents. And I often find myself thinking, oh, if mom were alive, she would know what to do. I wonder if it isn't until you lose that, that you don't come to appreciate it. This is, I think, why it's so important. And, you know, you were blessed to have not only great parents, but a great relationship and the ability to have that great relationship throughout life with your parents. Some people don't have that. And this is part of the power. I also chair the board of an organization called Uncore.org. We're all about connecting the generations, all about the work that older people and younger people can do together, whether they're in families or have no relationship with each other. And what you realize is there is just this powerful, almost magic connection, generation to generation to generation. It's been recognized in faith communities and in other ways, but I think it's something that we don't do enough of. We have kind of an age-segregated society, understandably, right? schools didn't exist in the way they exist today a few generations ago, where we kind of take kids when they're young and we send them off, or at least we send them off in normal times. There is something really special about whether it's, you know, somebody in their 80s and 90s connecting with somebody in their 50s and 60s, and then connecting with somebody in their 20s and 30s, bringing that different generational perspective, energy, skill set together. By the way, I see it in business environments, and Doro, just to kind of reinforce your point, we make the case regularly to business leaders that if they're thinking about how to staff a really difficult project, you know, a skunk works project that really requires imagination, creativity, a lot of thought, 
you know, don't put two 27-year-olds with a PhD in computer science at Stanford on the project. And frankly, don't put two people in my vintage on the project. Put one of each. You get the imagination and creativity and kind of risk-taking inclinations of youth, you know, that special energy, that special juice that young people have on the one hand. But with older people, you know, again, how to navigate environments, how to get things done. You understand corporate politics. You have an understanding of multi-sectoral problem solving, right? You don't just kind of bring one perspective to the table. The combination is really powerful. So this is something we advocate in business environments and with boards all the time that they should have this new longevity strategy. And an increasing number, thankfully, are listening, although I think we have a long, long way to go. What is your strategy? Are you working with businesses? Is that how you're getting this revolution going so that we can all join? (laughs) (laughs) We want part of the revolution. Uh, Revolutions happen in lots of different ways. (laughs) In our case, what we do is we really kind of have three tools. We do applied research. We do convening. We get people together who are influential and who have different perspectives and who can not only inform each other, but potentially change things on a broader scale, have some system level impact and we engage in communications strategies. Now, there are organizations that kind of do it in the streets. We probably more do it in the boardroom, but (laughs) I'm really sympathetic to those and and supportive of those who who do do it in the streets. Now, I was thinking the other day about this fantastic woman. I don't know if you've ever really focused on her, Maggie Kuhn, who started Gray Panthers, which was really a wonderful organization. It's kind of diminished in profile, but Maggie Kuhn was one of these people who just recognized the power of age and the fact that she was not only suffering discrimination as, as a woman, but very much as a result of her age. The compounding issues, I think, frankly, that particularly exist for, for women, she started this organization and she was very much in the streets. I mean, her actions were informed by kind of anti-racist activities and by the modern women's movement and all the rest. And we probably do need people marching around the Washington Monument. I'm not sure I'm the person to lead the march, but <laughs> I'd be happy to provide the speakers some research. We'll go with you. We'll go with you. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we'll put you two up on stage. Yeah. Paul, you know that Trisha and I are very interested in prevention and wellness. And I know that the Milken Institute believes that prevention and wellness is an opportunity to disrupt the illness care system. Absolutely. How can companies provide an environment for wellness that's affordable, that works? By the way, back to your movement building, and I would challenge you and I challenge myself and I would challenge anybody who's listening to this to understand the potential for investment in prevention and wellness. And I mean that in the public sector and I mean it in the private sector. We spend nationally of the federal health budget something like 90%, I'm really rough justice, 90% on treatment and care, maybe 5% on research and cure, maybe 5% on prevention and wellness. The thing we know that works, the single most important shift that changed public health was probably, now we could get into things like vaccines, right? So I'm of an age where the polio vaccine, for example, had a huge impact. But I would say the campaign against smoking, probably the most significant thing that has happened, by the way, It has not been entirely successful. Something in the mid-teens of American adults still smoke. This stuff is absolute poison, and it's tragic at this stage that anybody does it. But the point is that the reduction in smoking rates has had a massive positive effect on cardiovascular disease, on pulmonary disease, on various cancers, and all the rest. It's led to increasing longevity. We know that if we had a similar campaign of effectiveness to focus on obesity, for example, which remains a pandemic in many ways in many parts of the United States and increasingly in other parts of the world, 
if we made uh, more significant investments in prevention of wellness, in ensuring that fewer people smoke, in keeping people slimmer, in enabling people to exercise, addressing the social determinants of health, right? Having nutritious food available for people, having them live in safe neighborhoods, and having access to preventative health care, we could have an incredible impact. Just to finish the thought, I think if there's any time when that point could be made, Now is the time. And why do I say that? Because what we know about COVID is that two populations, really, in effect, one population has been dramatically affected and has suffered much, much higher rates of negative response to disease and death. And that is people over a certain age, older adults, but particularly older adults with comorbidities, multiple morbidities, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, and the like. I'll give you an example of one thing that I think we should do because I'm kind of into solutions and what could all of us do tomorrow? And I actually wrote a piece for you as News and World Report in which I suggested this. And by the way, we also know that COVID has more dramatically affected communities of color, particularly the African-American community, not because African-American people are more naturally susceptible to the disease, but because of these chronic conditions that so sadly infect these communities. So what we know is that the African-American community has higher rates of hypertension, high blood pressure than exists in the general population. Hypertension is incredibly easily tested and it's very simply treated. If we really cared about preventing disease and frankly about saving lives in the current circumstances, we could be testing and treating hypertension on every street corner and certainly in, in every poverty community, but I, I would say on every street corner in America, in barbershops and in pharmacies and every place else. Add some health literacy to ensure compliance, maybe a little bit of information on nutrition and diet. That's a harder and maybe longer term haul. But here's something that actually can be dramatically helped by medication that's not available to many, many people, and people are dying as a result. Does that make the point at all? Mm-hmm. Very much so. So I guess shifting gears, what is the economic power of older adults from your viewpoint? Tricia, it's a really important point. The data is powerful. In my world, we describe it as the longevity economy. Again, to an extent, it's intuitive, right? It's driven by demography. You've heard the phrase demography is destiny. I talked earlier about the fact that the population was going to look much, much older in decades to come. I believe, if I remember, that the most recent data out of AARP on this, which kind of does an analysis every couple of years on the size of the longevity economy. Now, remember, AARP's definition of old for these purposes is 50 plus. That's their demographic in the U.S. I think it's 8.3 trillion. That's product services and related economic activity, which would make just the economic activity of that cohort, the 50 plus cohort of the US, the third largest country in the world, if it was measured as GDP. And the extraordinary thing is this is a really underserved population. So if you think about the fact that if designers, manufacturers, inventors, technologists were actually doing things focused on an older population, the likelihood is those numbers would be much, much higher. We would be consuming more I was just talking to my better half a, a minute ago. We, we've been together since college. You know, sometimes she comes to speeches I give. And I remember one time I was talking and how I thought fashion might change. And I pointed at her in the audience and I said, you see that one sitting over there who's the same age I am. I said, we've been together since freshman year of college. I said, she's always really liked beautiful shoes. You know what? After a lifetime of refinement, of 
kind of critique of more and more understanding of her own taste and all the rest. She still likes shoes just as much, and her sense of design is probably even more refined. It's just that now she wants flats, <laughs> right? You guys get it. So the point is, if we designed a whole range of products more effectively for an older population, I think that would not only serve that population well, but frankly, it's an engine of economic growth. Mm. My mother, although in tough shape, is in her mid-90s. And a few years ago, we were outside the place where she lives, and she was walking with her and just visualize an old bent metal walker. You know exactly what、mm -hmm. they look like. And at the moment, we were outside, kind of walking very slowly with her walker, talking about whatever we were talking about, probably politics. At that moment, this incredibly attractive, very well dressed young couple walked by with a baby carriage. And the baby carriage—I remember saying this to my mom—the baby carriage looked like a Ferrari. It was the most <laughs> beautiful thing I had ever. You know, it was titanium and it had swooping <laughs> lines. And I thought to myself at that moment, I was already kind of well ensconced in, in this work. I thought. To myself, who in the world advised the person who spent all that time designing that baby carriage? That people, by the way, sadly in some respects, just aren't having babies anymore. We're, we're having babies below replacement rate, and yet there's this rapidly aging population doubling in size in the next couple of decades, and we're still designing products like that. Pointing at my mom's bent metal walker、yeah. for that demographic. So just imagine, you know, a Ralph Lauren or a <laughs> Diane von Furstenberg walker. I mean, I'm serious, right? <laughs> right well, you know, right. you're having lunch with one of your girlfriends, and she sees this gorgeous new walker, <laughs> kind of like a great look at back, right? And there's a hint of jealousy, right? Right. right. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs>、uh, I'm making light of it, but the truth of the matter is, is whether it's digital health tools or products or、mm -hmm. home designs or fashion, travel, food, you name it. The longevity economy is compelling. I did a、mm -hmm. report a couple of years ago, which your listeners can find if they want, going on the Milken Institute website. It's called "Silver to Gold: The Business of Aging." And I also have, if you have any Harvard Business Review subscriber listeners, I've done a few pieces for the Harvard Business Review on this subject. So, going along the theme of continuing to talk about our parents, <laughs> Trisha and I were blessed because. We both had wonderful dads. We have wonderful moms, but really, we both had great dads. Trisha's dad was a guy that spent his life giving back to others and、mm -hmm. helping lots of different communities. And my dad was president. <laughs> <laughs> no, but your dad jumped out of airplanes, and it yes, and it, he, I would say、yeah. he was a great ager because、yeah. he loved、yes. being about around younger people. He was extremely bored if people <laughs> were old and talking about ailments and. Things like that, and when asked why he jumped out of an airplane, he said just to prove that old guys can still do stuff. So my question is, can older people learn new things? Absolutely. So Harvard University opened its doors in 1636. I'm not sure when Yale University opened its doors, but it was a long time ago. At that time, it made some sense to focus on the younger cohort because there just weren't very many old people. Today, not only makes no sense; it's actually counterproductive and threatens the future of probably half of the universities and colleges in America. Not places like Harvard and Yale, but a lot of secondary and tertiary, both public and private universities that 
don't have adequate student bodies and that really haven't yet figured out, although it's changing, that lifelong learning Mm. should be an opportunity and imperative. And absolutely, old people are able to learn new things. And very honestly, I think at least one of you has kids, maybe both of you. Oh, have, we have, have eight kids. kids between so you have eight, eight kids between the two of you. So probably, I guarantee you, at some point, both of you or either of you have said to each other, something like college is wasted on the young. Wouldn't it be great to go back to campus and actually be able to think about the things that you might have blown off when you were 18? Now, this is the potential beauty of an intergenerational, not just population, not just workplace, but intergenerational student body. Imagine what could be learned across generation if we had older people on campus and if people thought to themselves, I can and should learn throughout life. For me, I consider myself incredibly lucky. I've had a very fortunate life. I worked hard, but I've also had a very fortunate life, access to education, access to interesting work, the kind of thing that I can do on screen while the really essential workers are out delivering boxes and growing our food and taking care of the sick. But for those who maybe didn't have the opportunity to enjoy college when they were young, for those who may decide that they want to do something dramatically different, and again, I am in that sense a career switcher, right? Why shouldn't education and opportunity be available to all? I remember having a conversation with a college president a few years ago, and I said, let me just pose a hypothetical to you. So I said, let's go back generations when disease risks were higher, average ages were shorter, and all, and all the rest. Somebody came into your program, decided to go get a PhD in their 20s, compete for tenure, get tenure, and have 20 or 30 years of scholarship until they dropped dead of a heart attack, which was much more likely in their 50s or, or 60s. Why shouldn't somebody today be able in their 40s or 50s to go back to school, incredibly committed, a former cop, a sanitation worker, whoever it is, who really has decided to buckle down and work hard to engage in that same program to compete for an entry-level academic position, to compete for tenure, and potentially to do meaningful, important scholarship into their 80s, 90s, and maybe even to the time when they're 100. Why shouldn't that work? And by the way, it doesn't. Most people will say, well, sure, it's, it's hypothetically true, but it really requires, again, a different idea, a different attitude about what older people are like and what older people can do. But that would be amazing because you talk a lot about the chronological age that it's not always relevant. And I think that's what you're sort of saying now. I mean, somebody who's 45, 50 can act pretty old, you know, and somebody then 65, 70 can act pretty young. The only thing I would edit about it is, and now I'm asking you to do me a favor to help me in my work. When you ask a question like that, lose the word old and young. So, yeah. so what you really meant is, is that somebody in their 40s can be ineffective or unproductive, and somebody in their 80s or 90s, not young, can be useful, meaningful, purposeful, contributing, thinking about those words, not as ways of describing things negatively or positively, but your point about biological age versus chronological age is spot on. What we know in the wake of the decoding of the human genome, right, right, which has just happened within the last couple of decades, is that people age in very, very different ways. People experience health in very, very different ways. Dora was talking about her dad jumping out of airplanes in his 90s. And this also, by the way, reinforces your message about prevention and wellness. Our shared goal should be to extend health span, to compress mortality and morbidity. Some people want to live forever. I'm not a live forever person. I'm a, I may live better, not live longer person. But we want people to experience sickness for a shorter period of time, to extend health span, to reinforce healthy longevity. 
That's all about prevention and wellness. It's about diet and exercise. It's about your mind. One of the women who's on my board chairs the psychology department at, at, at Yale. Her name is Becca Levy, and she's done this really fascinating research, both on the impacts of ageism on health and the impacts of self-perception on health. In other words, this question of how one views aging. One study she did, she determined that people who had these positive views of their own aging lived on average 7.5 years longer as significant a variable as body mass index, smoking, or exercise. Mm -hmm. So what that says is what's above our neck, our attitude, our sense of aging, our sense of purpose, again, blocking those negative age stereotypes, et cetera, that those things may not just mean better lives, but really significantly longer lives as well. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you went in to get an annual checkup when the doctor said, so Trish or Doro, so tell me about your volunteering do you feel a sense of purpose in your life? Things like that, which actually may have as much or more effect on both your health and longevity as anything else that they're doing in that office. And healthy relationships. That too. We talk a lot about that. There was a Harvard study that said that we live longer when we have good, healthy, strong, supportive relationships. Do you talk much about that? Sure. And both romantic relationships and friendships and collaborations and co-working relationships. And one of the challenges of aging is a natural and very frequent loss of relationships. If we think about right. when we tend to meet people, we meet people when we're growing up, we meet them in school, we meet them through marriage and coupling, we meet them when our kids go to school, right? And we meet them in workplaces. And oftentimes, and I'm not recommending this, but as people move into retirement and move away from workplaces, as people die and move away, as kids move away, which of course is a more modern phenomenon, as all those things happen, relationship networks tend to become smaller, tend to shrink. This is why I'm such an advocate of lifelong learning and specifically of engaging in work in academic institutions, because I think you oftentimes need places to meet new people. And it's just not that easy. I'm not sure that the kinds of virtual hookups that work for some generations necessarily work for the kinds of friendships that all of us want. So I don't know if both of you know about the Blue Zones. You probably do. Yeah, right? yeah. So Dan Beatner, who I know well, who first wrote about it for National Geographic. And right. for those who don't know about the Blue Zones, there are these places in the world where for some reason people tend to live average lives that are much longer than the population in general. And if you look at what they have in common, they certainly eat healthy, generally plant based diets. They have a lot of exercise. But relationship is a really, really important piece that when he defined his original blue zones, there was only one blue zone in the United States. Do you know what that one blue zone was? It's a place called Loma Linda, California. Yes. It's a small town east of Los Angeles, and it's principally a Seventh-day Adventist community. Right. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, <laughs> so it probably wouldn't work for me. By the way, there's uh, Provo, Utah has some of the same characteristics. But what you find in this place it can inform the rest of us, whatever our religion, whatever our inclinations about living environments, low divorce rates, high family and community connectivity, very healthy diets, strong association with faith communities, longer than typical work lives, a very good health system with good access to that health system, inclination to lifelong learning, the sense of belonging. It's not to say that all of us will live or should live or want to live the same lives as the people who live in Loma Linda, California, or for that matter, the people who live in Okinawa or some of the other places that are blue zones. 
But I think all of us can learn from these places, take lessons, and somehow apply those things in our own lives. In the information that you sent over to us, the last frontier of diversity and inclusion is aging. Can you talk about that and how we even started out by saying, you know, aging isn't a disease at all. How do you describe this last frontier? We're living in a time when there is hyperattention, as I personally think is appropriate, to diversity, to women on boards and in leadership positions in companies and, frankly, on the Supreme Court, to people of color having not only opportunity, but the possibility and potential of involvement in leadership and engagement in a whole range of areas and sectors and parts of business. You know, the LGBTQ community has been embraced by business and obviously has made great progress. And people who were in the closet a generation ago are now in leadership positions and are comfortably out. One of the things that we have advocated to heads of HR and companies and to folks in the C-suite, CEOs and, and others and boards, is that they're missing one element when they think about the range of that diversity, when they think about gender and they think about race and they think about sexuality and they think about other characteristics. And we know, frankly, that diversity lends to businesses. It brings different points of view. It brings a tug and pull. It brings different perspectives. The thing that's missing in that diversity matrix is age. By the way, not just old, but young as well. And I kind of made the point earlier when I was talking about teaming on projects. You bring young people and old people together. You bring people from different generations together. And you'll get powerful ideas that can turn into products and services and innovative ideas. I mean, just imagine a young person designing a home with fabulous technologies embedded that might not be something that reflexively I would think about. But what I might think about is the fact that the door jam better be built wide enough for a wheelchair. And by the way, I would make the argument that if things are designed well for older people, they tend to be designed well for young people as well. I was a participant a few years ago in the White House conference on aging that was done in the Obama administration. And there was a fabulous woman who came and spoke in her 90s, an engineer. And she was involved in a really interesting project, a really interesting kind of design thought project at IDEO, which is a very advanced global, but also kind of Silicon Valley design firm. And one of the things she said is, again, getting back to my notion about the size of the longevity economy, the potential of these products and services, how can you design for us unless you design with us? You know, in a sense, that's true of any diversity question, right? People oftentimes talk about a bunch of old white men sitting around (laughs) and talking about design for women or for young people. And so the answer is it's good to have different perspectives in the room. And part of that perspective should be different perspective on age. I think we covered this maybe, but the kids say to their parents, okay, boomer, and things like that. (laughs) And Karen, right? Like, oh, you're a Karen. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only way people tend to get over really get over biases at any age is actual experience. We're having a lot of conversation in the United States about race today. And the reality is, is that white people can't walk in black people's shoes and experience what they have experienced for generations. But for us to try to understand and for us to try to respond to it in constructive ways, we have to be there for them and with them. And I would say the same thing is true on age. If we want to get over things like the OK Boomer meme and all the rest, back to my interest in intergenerational connection, I think part of it is just trying to combat age segregation. You know, most people want to age in place and want to age in communities. I think most people, when they've really had the opportunity to experience 
integrated age, whether it's age living or integrated age volunteering, they find great value in it. But a lot of people haven't experienced that. People are, are afraid of young people or young people think that old, old people are greedy geezers or whatever the biases are. The biases are unfair and, I, you know, in some cases may be accurate, but generally unfounded. And I think the only way we get over it is we got to get to know each other. We have to sit down and have conversations. We have to see value in the other. I will say one of the things that I often say when I'm speaking to older crowds, my generation, is if we really care about young people supporting us, whether it's wearing face masks in a time of COVID or support for entitlement programs for Social Security and Medicare, or frankly, just to give us opportunities for ongoing work and for health, then we also have to be there for them. We have to think about the future. I find the current political environment on both sides just so frustrating. And I say to people, because I think that there is this common bond, I think most of us, there probably are exceptions. I can think of maybe a few, but I think almost all of us probably grew up. Doro, I would be shocked if you said that this was not true of your dad and mom. We grew up with our parents saying something to us like, you should leave the world a better place than you found it. Mm, 100%. People might have expressed it in different words, but kind of in different ways. You know, some people thinking of of it in terms of their kids living better lives than they lived or their grandkids. Some people thinking about leaving a world in which they've left a legacy that somehow means improvement for the future. I think that's true of progressives. I think it's true of conservatives. I think it's true of virtually all faith communities. And I think we have to get back to that. And I think one of the things I would say of my generation, you know, I'm late civil rights, Vietnam War, all that other stuff that all of us remember, we had this sense of social activism, a sense that somehow we could make the world a better place, whether we did it effectively or not, one could argue. But I think all of us have to take a step back and say to ourselves, what kind of world are we leaving for our kids and for their kids? And I think we owe them that. And then I think they owe us something back. I'm kind of invoking, I suppose, my history as a lawyer. Maybe I can't get this out of my head, but I kind of think in all respects, you know, life, like it or not, is some kind of a trade. It always is. And it's also an intergenerational trade. So if we want respect, if we want support, if we want health, if we want dignity in our later years, if we want the opportunity to realize purpose, then I think we have an obligation now. And our obligation is not to sit in a I'm not being critical, but not to sit in a retirement community someplace being angry. Our obligation is in a very difficult world is to try to heal the wounds, to try to narrow the divides, try to improve the environment, to try to improve education, provide opportunity for the next generation of people coming up, whether they're our kids or not. And I think if we do that, maybe this is my naivety, maybe I'm being Pollyannish about it, but I think if we do that, some of that okay boomer thing will fall away. I think people will see the value that we've been able to provide. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. This is such a huge topic that Trisha and I care a lot about. And so maybe you'll come back and talk <laughs> to us to. some more. <laughs> we just appreciate what you're doing to improve so many lives in the world. You're certainly one who's giving back. And we thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to see you both again. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.